You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I am excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and enjoy listening to episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you're listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order a copy. If you're listening after March 1st, run to your local bookstore or online and grab a copy today. You will not regret it. The book has a foreword by Cornell West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Get unmuted, the book, today. Now, let's get into the episode. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Colleen Murphy. Colleen is a professor in the College of Law and the Departments of Philosophy and Political Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her interests are in philosophy of law, political philosophy, and engineering ethics. Her books include The Conceptual Foundations of Transitional Justice and A Moral Theory of Political Reconciliation. In this episode, we talk about transition societies, justice, the relationship between forgiveness and reconciliation, and so much more. Hello, Colleen, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me here. Thanks for coming on. How did you get interested in philosophy? By taking a philosophy course. So when I was an undergrad at Notre Dame, all students had to take two philosophy classes. And when I took my first one, I couldn't believe there was an entire discipline that was devoted to studying questions like, what is the meaning of justice? And does God exist? And why should I? I was just hooked after Mm -hmm. that class. Mm -hmm. And was it was it an intro course? Was it a survey? Was it a specific like seminar? What was it exactly? It was an introduction to philosophy. So just a general intro course. And that was enough. Then I just wanted to take more and more. Did you change your major? Did you, how did that, how did that go about? You know, so I was, I took it my first semester freshman year. So I didn't, I had been thinking about political science because I thought I would go to law school, but I hadn't officially declared a major. And then after that class, just decided to register for more and more philosophy classes and ended up with a concentration in PPE. So philosophy, politics, and economics. So I, I got some of the political science and the economics in there, but filled most of my schedule with philosophy. So the work that you currently do is still a combination of those things, very much so. So, so let's, get, let's get into some of that stuff, particularly focusing on political reconciliation and uh, tapping on some of the more recent stuff that you've been focusing on, which is transitional justice. So in your, in your book on political reconciliation, you introduce us to an important philosophical political problem. And I kind of took note of, of, of that sentence. And you write, the problem is such, how it becomes possible for human beings who live in the same society and who have suffered and inflicted suffering on one another in a systematic and widespread, widespread manner to live peacefully and justfully with each other again. And I, I was just, just thinking about that. And, and, a, and a part of that larger sentence just really came out to me. And so what stands out for me is the who have suffered and inflicted suffering on one another part. And it seems that, that this is different than living in a society in which the suffering and infliction of that suffering was not mutual. 
And so are the context of, of mutual and non-mutual suffering two different political problems for you, for us, and thus political questions with their own solutions? Or are they closer than, than one might think? I think they're often closer than one might think. So I'm interested in particular in contexts in which there are long-standing conflicts or long-standing systems of structural inequality. So inequalities in the opportunities that are open to different groups of citizens to be educated or employed or participate in political processes and shape the rules of the game, so to speak, themselves. And when wrongdoing where I have in mind in particular violations of human rights become just a basic fact of life for individuals, or at least certain groups of individuals within a society. And in that context, especially when you're talking about inequality that's longstanding and wrongdoing that's normalized, there there tends to be no neat and clean divisions between perpetrators and victims, but you get the categories overlapping not overlapping in the same extent or in the same way. And it's definitely true that you see across contexts violence that, that varies in the degree to which it's symmetrical or equally committed on both sides. But even when it's asymmetrical, you can find intra-group wrongdoing. So, you know, oppression and repression force individuals to make complicated choices when it comes to either mere survival or seeking greater opportunities or pursuing liberation. And so sometimes in the course of that pursuit, other individuals who are members of the same group can be wronged or they can become complicit in the impression of others. And conversely, members of a group who are benefiting from the, the oppression of others can themselves become targets for violence if they speak out against injustice. So even there, when the overlap of victim and perpetrator is not as extensive as in cases of symmetrical violence, you still find the complicated cases. And so this question of how do you live together again? Hmm, that's interesting. So I want I want to stick with this kind of, I guess, given a kind of an account of the nature of this kind of particular society. So let me quote you again. You write, political reconciliation is widely recognized to be one of the most important challenges for societies attempting to, to democratize following periods of oppressive rule or civil conflict characterized by widespread and systematic human rights abuses, which is kind of what you just said. And it seems like this context is what you refer to in your book as transition societies. And and I can see how South Africa and more recently Egypt were in our transition societies. But would you also describe the U.S. during the era of Reconstruction or perhaps during the era of civil rights or even today as transition societies? Yeah, that's great. So there's four criteria I use when I'm looking at or evaluating whether society is transitional or not. So two are what what you just mentioned, whether or not there's pervasive structural inequality is the language I use, but this inequality and the opportunities and, and ability to shape institutional rules, the wrongdoing that's normalized. And then there's two further conditions, one of which is uncertainty of a certain kind. So when societies are in transition, it's, it becomes unclear where exactly a community is heading. So it becomes less unclear that the future is one of ongoing oppression and wrongdoing. There's an opening or a possibility of peace or an ending of conflict. But whether that actually materializes is far from clear, whether you're going to get a, you know, a post-democratic future or not. So that kind of uncertainty about where exactly is a society going with an ending of war or toppling of a dictatorship, and then uncertainty about authority. So where questions of how does the state have standing to deal with wrongdoing if it's implicated in the wrongdoing that now 
transitional justice processes often take up. So when I look at those criteria, the U.S. during Reconstruction is just a paradigmatic case of transitional. So that was meeting fully and completely all four conditions that would you would see in South Africa post-apartheid and Egypt following the fall of Mubarak. I think the U.S. during the civil rights movement is also arguably a paradigmatic case because part of what the civil rights movement was doing was trying to push for or generate the kind of uncertainty about the viability of American society maintaining Jim Crow um, and a society predicated on racial segregation and ultimately was successful in seeing legislation pacts that at least formally and officially ended Jim Crow. And I think today, too, when you look at movements like Black Lives Matter in particular, you see efforts to try and generate, again, the kind of uncertainty about the acceptability of the status quo that the civil rights movement was trying to generate. And then coupled with Trump's election, where you see references to make America great again, and you're asking what exactly do you want to make great again when you look back at our history? You know, a lot of uncertainty about where exactly is the U.S. heading that I think also resonates with the the kind of context that you find in transitions paradigmatically. I wonder, as you were talking, it it made me think that, so in the case of South Africa, we can can describe that as a transition society. And I'm thinking if, if a society is or has been a transition society, would they continue to remain a transition society? Because it's easy to revert back. Is it always uh, the, the case that that society will be a transition society for you? So in one sense, yes. And in another sense, no. So I argue that the, the goal of transitional justice processes, so these, these processes like amnesty or truth commissions or memorials or criminal trials that are dealing with legacies of wrongdoing in the this context of trying to move away from war or repression more generally, that the goal is ultimately to transform political relationships. And, um, but I also argue, and, and so that links it up with political reconciliation, which I think is about repairing relationships that are damaged. But in my view, this, this transforming relationships is a process that takes decades and really generations. So in that sense, yes, if you're trying to pursue the the transformation of relationships, that's a long-term process that no truth commission will achieve or no particular criminal trial or memorial. But in another sense of these sort of moments of real genuine uncertainty about where a society is going. So just as I mentioned before we started the podcast, I was in Colombia this past week where there's a peace agreement that was signed and is in the process of being implemented between the Colombian government and the FARC, but still a lot of uncertainty about whether the ending of conflict is final or not. Um, So in that that sense, transitions, being in transition in the sense where you're trying to sort of get on a trajectory towards peace that's more stable, that doesn't endure over generations or forever. It endures as long as this question of are we really out of war or are we really seeing an end to, to dictatorship as long as those questions exist, if that makes sense. So, so let me ask just another question since you mentioned it before you, you post your, uh, your response. And this is a larger question because this is what your previous book is about. What is political reconciliation? <laughs> right. It's a $20 million question. <laughs> yes. So, so I think at its, its most general level, it's the process of repairing 
deeply damaged political relationships among citizens and between citizens and officials. And accounts of reconciliation can vary in how they fill out ways relationships are damaged or what repair looks like. But the, the, the simplest, the most basic definition of that, it's this process of repairing political relationships that are um, deeply and profoundly damaged. So I'm not going to try, I'm going to try my best. One of the things I had to tell myself, don't go down rabbit holes. Don't go rabbit, stay focused, stay focused. <laughs> but you mentioned the word repair. Yeah. So since that is part of your definition of political reconciliation, so then I'm also interested in like, what does that repair look like? Right. So you didn't say a restoration. You said kind of amending and, and some, and, and um, it can be amending. It could be kind of like the repair that we do in our homes in which uh, it looks better than it previously did. So give us a little bit more about, about that repair part. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So I intentionally don't use the idea of restoration because I think very often where political almost, I can't think of a case, a counterexample, but where there's a need for political reconciliation, there isn't a, a, a kind of relationship to return to that's morally defensible. You're dealing with, you know, here histories of relationships predicated on injustice and, and the injustice varies. But so it's it's about the mending of, of damage that can be, you know, damage that's been replicated intergenerationally over centuries or, you know, over decades, depending on the, the, the context. So when I think of what that mending looks like, what you're talking about, I, th- I, I think it's about trying to establish relationships of equality that are based on mutual respect for agency and reciprocity. And what I think that looks like in practice, and this is just recon- an argument that's based on looking at what the moral complaints are of citizens in the context of conflict or subject to re- oppression and, and or repression. So that involves repairing things like the absence or erosion of the rule of law, where by that I mean, in particular, where there exists gaps between what declared rules say and what happens in practice, between rights that are recognized on paper and rights that fail to be respected or not violated in fact. Um, You know, where limits on how government forces or security agents can treat citizens are specified in paper, but not realized in in fact. And also, secondly, uh, establishing conditions where trust can be reasonable. Um, Because when you're dealing with contexts where there's histories of morally problematic relationships, it's unsurprising that you have deep and profound distrust. And, you know, the fault lines of distrust vary, but often the distrust is quite reasonable. So, you know, establishing conditions for trust to be reasonable, either with respect to certain citizens, with respect to government officials or both, and then trying to establish threshold levels of opportunities for all citizens to be respected, to be recognized as members of the political community, participate in institutions, and fundamentally avoid poverty. So that's kind of how I fill out what gets damaged, these sort of absence of opportunities to avoid poverty, the inability to be respected even when you have the competence and the right to demand respect trust and and this sort of gap that opens up between what the law looks like on paper and what actually happens in practice. Former Archbishop Desmond Tutu famously writes that there's no future without forgiveness. On on your view, what is the relationship between forgiveness and the political reconciliation that you're referring to? Do you think that they're the same? Does one require the other? If not, what does political reconciliation require? So I don't link or equate political reconciliation with forgiveness. 
So I think political reconciliation is one thing and forgiveness is another. And, you know, a, a way of maybe reform, rephrasing what Bishop Tutu says, I think there's no future without addressing the underlying sources of anger that stem from wrongdoing. So I, I, I avoid the, the move to forgiveness or the thinking of reconciliation in terms of forgiveness, where that's about overcoming negative attitudes like anger or resentment or hatred for a couple of reasons. One is that I think it, it invites the very serious and real risk that the right of victims to be angry at having been wronged will be denied. And the sort of move to have victims either accept what happened to them or not complain about it in ways that are morally defensible will be where a society goes. Because that's much simpler, right? If you get victims to say, okay, I'm no longer angry, then you can more easily move beyond and engaging in the hard work of trying to address, well, what were the root causes and sources of anger, which is wrongdoing and the conditions that enabled it. So I want to focus on on the, those latter two things, on, on wrongdoing and what allowed it, what did wrongdoing look like, what, what effects does it have, and make reconciliation about focusing on that rather than on negative emotions that those who've been wronged legitimately feel. And this is this is going to sound like a, like an odd question, and some people are going to say, "Come on, Maisha, why did you even ask this question?" But but I wonder, and I and I've thought about this before in question form, so I, I don't even know if I necessarily have an answer to this. Is political reconciliation necessary, or are there other alternatives on the table for a, for a society transition? And I'm thinking perhaps coexistence, or, or you may you may even argue, "Hey, you can't coexist unless there is some repairing of sorts." So so is it necessary, and why or why not? So I, I think it is it is necessary if you want to seriously end repression and conflict, not only in the immediate short term, but also long term in the future. So if you don't repair relationships that are damaged, you have no basis for hope or optimism that the history that you're coming out of won't be repeated again in the future because you've done nothing to address the terms for interaction that allowed people to be harmed and rights violations to take place. You're absolutely right that the view that I lay out is pretty demanding in terms of what what you're trying to do in the process of repairing relationships. So I think of reconciliation as sort of a scalar concept where you can, you know, you can do things that are important and laudable and should be praised in reaching a point where you can merely coexist together, you know, especially post-genocide or, po- you know, that that's, that's an achievement. But part of what I want to press is that, but, it, but it's not the final stop. And, and, and part of a demanding account of reconciliation is just continually drawing attention to the ways in which more needs to be done if you want to get relations, political relationships that are based on morally defensible terms. Right, right. So let's talk about that latter part by probably putting you in hot waters here to look at two kind of political issues and political actors. Right. So do you think that that there has been political reconciliation in relationship to America in its past history with Native Americans first and African-Americans second? If so, why not? If not, what do you think would need to happen in order for it to take place? Right. So I think that the answer to your first question about whether there's been political reconciliation, the answer is no with respect to either Native Americans or African Americans. Um, and I think, 
you know, what it would take, why I believe that. So, I mean, that's not to say that there hasn't been improvements from the perspective of justice of the rights and opportunities that are open, for example, to African-Americans and maybe some improvements in the living conditions of Native Americans. But I, I think in terms of real repair that's enduring, part of the problem is we haven't in the United States had any serious effort to deal with wrongdoing or oppression in their legacies in any national robust way. So, you know, there's there's isolated things. The new lynching memorial in Alabama that opened up is one. The Greensboro Truth Commission is another. But by and large, we haven't dealt with our past. And I think this has a number of consequences. It, it creates a context for denying the violence and wrongdoing, slavery and, and Jim Crow and the removal of African-Americans as part of the, of Native Americans, excuse me, as part of the founding of the United States had, both in terms of what literally happened, uh, how many people were killed or how many people were harmed, denial about how bad it was, morally speaking, and also denial about who's implicated in those histories, right? And I think, you know, because there's just this context for denial about our past, that means that there's no motivation to seriously interrogate the term structuring interaction among white Americans and African Americans, on the other hand, or Native Americans, to see what has enabled historic violence and wrongdoing, what allowed pervasive injustice to exist both historically, and you can argue also in the present, and, um, you know, denial about the links between Jim Crow era discrimination and the wholesale deprivation of wages during slavery and racial disparities in wealth you find today. So I think the result is, you know, distrust across racial lines persists in the U.S., unsurprisingly. The context for the resurgence of white supremacist groups, which we're seeing, is ripe because of this broader failure to really come to grips with our history in an official and systemic way, you know, and no serious effort to think about the, the kind of structural reform we need. So there's been, you know, when I look at other contexts, there, there's lessons, though Americans don't like to think we can learn from other places, <laughs> lots of lessons, you know, that we could take about how you as a society just talk about your past and the ugly parts of it and what we need to do in light of that past. It's interesting as you, as you were talking, it, you were, you, you know, using the words of denial, using the words of, of talking about things. It just made me think about, oh, she, she's, she's talking about truth. And, and that's, you know, you think about this, you know, South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? How important, how important truth is. And I think as, as long as we remain in that denial, at least the first step is truth. Because when we think about South Africa, it was more than, than the truth telling. It was other things that, that took place to kind of bring about. But if we can't even get this one thing down, <laughs> how can we kind of institute, institute the other things? That's, that's quite interesting. So, so I, I, you know, it, it seems like a natural transition since we're talking about transition. Of, of you writing a book on political reconciliation to the focusing now on transitional justice. But I, I do wonder, uh, why was that the next project for you? Why was that, why was that the, next, the next focus for you that you thought needed to be addressed? I think two reasons. One was the, the discussion about political reconciliation always or most prominently takes place in terms of this broader discussion of transitional justice. So I wanted to think through what those connections were. And then, and then some people just pressed me. So what does reconciliation have to do with justice and with transitional justice? So I wanted to have an answer to that question. After I, I had an answer to how I thought about political reconciliation, you know, sort of clarify for myself. So what does this have to do with justice and transitional justice specifically? 
So one might think that we need transitional justice to get reconciliation and that we need reconciliation to get transitional justice. And when I was thinking about this, as much as I felt that I was equivocating, I don't think that I was. So so what is transitional justice for you as well as this connection to reconciliation? So transitional justice is is broadly defined as referring to formal or informal processes for dealing with wrongdoing during these periods of attempted transition away from war to peace or from conflict to repression. And so processes like the ones that we've been talking about, amnesty or truth commissions or memorials or criminal trials. And so when I think about fill out that definition. What, 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 what does this have to do with justice? What's the justice of transitional justice? I think it's ultimately about trying to achieve reconciliation, trying to repair relations, transform relationships by dealing with past wrongdoing and responding to wrongdoing in a way that does right by victims and, and satisfies the moral demands on perpetrators who are direct participants in these processes. So I, I think of reconciliation is sort of the goal that you're aspiring to to achieve or at least facilitate. And that goal is a goal of justice, right? That's the objective of this, uh, of transitional justice. So I think they're very intimately connected. There was, and you referenced this, this kind of issue in, in, in your book, particularly when you highlight South Africa and you talk about how their way of going about repairing, people had very different opinions about that aim. So, for example, they decided to to use amnesty and, and there were questions about if that was achieving kind of the threshold threshold of justice. And it seems as if people have different conceptions. I mean, political philosophy is right with different conceptions of justice. And so if people had these these different conceptions about what justice requires, how would that transition society know or agree with the claim that transitional justice has actually occurred? Yeah, that's a great question. And what's interesting about working on transitional societies is that the debates that you're talking about in terms of the meaning of justice are not merely academic. They're deeply practical. They're, They're debates that citizens of transitional societies have and engage in and politicians have and, and debate amongst themselves. So it's, it's, not merely a theoretical question, this question of what, what does justice mean in this moment right now? And, and, and how do we know if we've gotten it? So I think that, you know, one thing, one, one basic point is that that's part of the reason why it's so important to clarify through public and discussion sort of how a community is going to conceptualize the justice that's being pursued, right, where philosophy is sort of essential to the project that you need to have these conversations about, okay, what do we mean, right? So if, if, if you adopt my view, it, what we're doing is trying to repair profoundly damaged political relationships in ways that build trust and establish these opportunities. So those provide some of the metrics for success, right? Some of the, what you look for, and then you could have people try and fill out criterion to see whether or not you made any progress in achieving transitional justice. And course, you know, I'm not a philosopher queen, so I'm not going out there and saying, here's the view you need to adopt. But I do hope with my book that it provides resources, again, not only for scholars, but really for, for citizens and, and observers of, of, of societies grappling with these questions of justice for how to think through these different views that are taken about what justice means and what a society is trying to, to go towards so that there can be that public conversation and, and hopefully some sort of overlapping consensus 
about what for a given community justice is going to look like and then what the standards for success or failure will be. My brain can't let go of a word that you mentioned several times throughout this interview. And so before we before we wrap up this series of questions, I have to ask you this question. So you mentioned memorials and considering that important to reconciliation or justice. And I want you to talk about that a little bit more, particularly for this season. We're talking to Michelle Moody Adams as well, who's been doing work on memorials. And as you were talking, uh, you alluded to kind of the lynching museum and kind of connecting that to truth. And in the era that we're, we're living in, not only are those kind of memorials going up, there's some other memorials that are also going down. And so I wonder if you could talk about memorials in very different ways and connecting that to reconciliation and, and justice in any way that you want. No, I think so. Part of what's so interesting about memorials is that they offer a sort of physical, concrete way of telling the history of a community by virtue of what you're acknowledging and and sort of highlighting and how you're highlighting it and how you're framing it. So I think one one thing that's so powerful about the lynching memorial, which I have yet to visit in person, but just from looking at the visuals that I've seen of the pictures, is, is just extraordinary in its composition and, and sort of aesthetics, is that it's providing like a physical reminder of lynching and its role in our history, right? In a way that sort of is physically trying to counter the denial we were talking about earlier, right? That it didn't happen or that it didn't happen to a lot of people, or that it wasn't as brutal as it in fact was. So I think, you know, memorials as sites for, again, this sort of physical concretization of a particular person or moment or aspect of history is just one way that a community sort of marks what matters um, and who matters and what matters to our self-understanding of who we are. And then that, that can kind of put into context why the removals of certain memorials also matter because of what they're saying about how we're remembering our history and who we remember, who we're valorizing um, as heroes or as significant figures in shaping us. And and you can think of someone who was, you know, an important figure in Jim Crow South in terms of supporting the entrenchment of Jim Crow era policies. And there's a way in which you can have that remembered, but in a way that doesn't valorize or make that person a hero, but as a marker or remembrance of the injustice that we're capable of. So I think part of what's interesting in looking, again, looking globally is that you know, when it comes to Confederate memorials, one option, of course, is, is sort of removing the honorific place that these memorials have had in communities as sort of celebratory or markers of importance in a way that's not contextualized as seen as, you know, for example, important because led to the ongoing persistence of injustice over decades. But then there are ways other societies that have tried to repurpose memorials that once were commemorating in a positive way an event or a period or a person that that is now viewed post-transition as less morally laudatory. So I think in thinking about what we do with Confederate memorials, a retelling of the history of the person is another route to go. So in so many of these cases, it's you don't want to erase the facts, for example, that folks who should not have been valorized were and were for a long time. And so the removal, the erasure of that fact is one way to go. Another way is to keep standing and, and point out that very fact so that we more critically look at who we're valorizing today that might in the future seem much more morally problematic than it is right now. 
So you are a professor of law and philosophy, and I know there are many listeners today who are students uh, who are interested in law and philosophy. Some of them are even applying to join programs in order to one day do what you do, which is become a professor in both fields. What advice can you give to, to those students who have this interest? Love school. <laughs> You'll be in it for a long time. So I think, you know, it's a great intersection. I, I find it. So the, so the first advice is to say that if, if you have a hunch that you'd be interested in both, both fields, follow the hunch. Because, you know, I love the abstract reflection of philosophy and I love the concrete way that law brings it home in looking at particular rules that get passed, um, the ways decisions are made about how justice will be meted out in particular cases. I think that also speaks to just an awareness that the two fields are different. So the methodologies are different. You find a much more plurality of methodology, social scientific, very doctrinal, more philosophical among law faculty, and then, you know, different areas of philosophy that also vary in their methodology, the extent to which you should be interdisciplinary or not. So to do some research investigating those differences before investing a significant amount of time and or money in pursuing both degrees. You know, I don't myself have a JD, even though I'm in a law professor now, but I, if I had to go back and do it again, I would have pursued a joint degree. Now I'm too old. But um, I would if I had to do it over again. So I guess that's, you know, do your research, make sure you really do would enjoy deep investigation into both fields, look for programs that have expertise in both areas. And then, you know, I found it just absolutely enriching for my intellectual life. I usually encounter students and particularly promising students in philosophy, for example. And I always ask them, so what are you, what are you going to do at the graduation? And I'm hoping to hear, oh, I'm going to I'm going to apply to PhD programs in philosophy. Right. But when I hear students don't say that and they um, say instead, oh, I'm going to go to law school, my usually response is, oh, OK, <laughs> like that's yeah. the only other option where I'm right. like, okay. <laughs> any other option? I was still trying to convince them to get a PhD in philosophy. But usually when they say law, I'm like, OK, yeah, okay. Right. I, don't, I don't know if, if in some ways I find that kind of I guess I, I find similarities uh, in ways that can't really be debated to, for me. This is just for me. You know, in being a lawyer, especially if you go into practice, you can be pursuing injustice. I mean, sorry, or, you or yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. hopefully you're pursuing justice, <laughs> right. but, you know, trying to act in ways that practically in your life, you're sort of trying to see realized in our communities, the injustice that you might have studied. Or, sorry, again, the injustice. You want to see realize the justice. Hopefully you're editing that out. No, 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 no. So here's the thing. There are lawyers who are indeed doing that. I mean, let's let's yeah. be honest here. <laughs> they are pursuing injustice for they the sake of the almighty be, dollar. I'm just saying that's it. Right, that's right. So being aware of that fact, too, being right. able to have resources for critiquing the career choices you're making. You know, philosophy can do good for that, too. <laughs> right. I'm interested. What is your your favorite TV law series? So I have two very young kids which means all I can talk about intelligently these days are cartoon programs. (laughs) I wish I had a favorite TV law series, but honestly, my views are about cartoons these days. Uh, That is hilarious. Which which cartoon? So PJ Masks, really good good cartoon. Vampirina, another really good cartoon. Those are the, and then I've got Disney, you know, Moana. My kids are on a big, they've been on a Moana kick for years and years. Incredibles too. The original Incredibles. So those are kind of my genre of expertise at the moment. <laughs> I was about to ask you which one of those cartoon series, because at the end of the day, no matter how much we think about justice, reconciliation, philosophy and law, we need a break. 
we need to turn our brain off from these subject areas. So, so cartoons is a good option. Out of those cartoons, which one of those would you highly recommend to adults? Now, my assumption is that you're going to recommend Incredibles. Yes. But other than that one, out of the other ones that you mentioned, what would be a good one for adults to calm their brains down? You know, I like Vampirina. What is it about? It's about a little girl who moves from, and I should know the place, it's like Transylvania, but I don't think they actually call it Transylvania. She ends up in New Jersey. And so it's just about navigating childhood as a kid who's coming from the outside, used to different sets of practices. She's a vampire, so how she fits in and the friends that she makes and cultivates. It's, you know, they had a program. She was she was in the equivalent of brownies and she was trying to earn her badge, but they did things back differently in Transylvania. So she kept failing. She was trying to get this badge for gardening and she didn't understand because she she would succeed. She, you know, she's a really good gardener in Transylvania. So kind of navigating this sort of move and cultural shift. It's 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 just delightful and it's really cute. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to check it out. Colleen, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. Too, Maisha. Thanks for, for the invitation. I learned from you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.